Amen. Please be seated. Please turn with me, if you will, to Nehemiah chapter 10. Nehemiah chapter 10. And we're going to look for a reading of God's holy word at verses 1 to 31. Nehemiah chapter 10, verses 1 to 31. This evening, we're going to be looking at God's people during the time of Nehemiah. And by the time we reach chapter 10, they are entering in to covenant with Almighty God. They are entering into a solemn promise, an oath, (coughs) before the throne of grace. As it says at the beginning of this chapter, they sign a covenant. They place their seal on this document. And this is a time of rejoicing. It's a time of rejoicing because God's people here in the time of Nehemiah see that they've fallen short of the glory of God. And that they see that they're really covenant breaking. And they're falling, when we think about it, under the the curses of books like Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Promises and curses that go right back to the time of Moses. But here we have a special day because they are promising to follow God. A wonderful day. And when we think of wonderful days, today is also a wonderful day for the life of this congregation. There's new elders, new deacons. And with them, new promises of following God. And not just the elders and the deacons, but also the whole congregation together promising before Almighty God essentially to follow God and to act in obedience toward Him. All that to say, covenanting, promising, vowing before God is not just something for something that took place about 450 years before the time of Christ. It is still for today. Covenanting, promising, vows, oaths are still for today, just as as much as they were for this time in Israel's history. So let us read now God's holy word, Nehemiah chapter 10, verses 1 to 31. Let us hear God's word. On the seals are the names of Nehemiah the governor, the son of Hakaliah, Zedekiah, Sariah, Azariah, Jeremiah, Pasher, Amariah, Malkijah, Hattush, Habaniah, Maloch, Harim, Merimoth, Obadiah, Daniel, Ginnathon, Barak, Meshalam, Abijah, Mijamin, Baziah, Bilgai, Shemaiah, these are the priests, and the Levites, Jeshua the son of Azariah, Azaniah, Benuai, the sons of Henadad, Cadmiel and their brothers, Shebaniah, Hodiah, Kelita, Peliah, Hanan, Micah, Rehob, Hashabiah, Zachur, Sherebiah, Shebaniah, Hodiah, Bani, Beninu, 
the chiefs of the, pre- of the people, Parash, Pahath Moab, Elam, Zatu, Bani, Buni, Asgad, Bibai, Adonijah, Bigbai, Adin, Atir, Hezekiah, Azur, Hodiah, Hashem, Bezai, Haref, Anathoth, Nebai, Magpiash, Meshalom, Hezir, Meshazebel, Zadok, Jadua, Palatiah, Hanan, Ananiah, Hoshea, Hananiah, Hashib, Halohesh, Pilha, Shobek, Rehem, Hashabna, Mashea, Ahiah, Hanan, Anan, Malok, Haram, Bana. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands of the law of God. Their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and to do all the commandments of the Lord our, the Lord, our Lord and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exactation of every debt. And may the Lord bless the reading of his holy word. In our text here this evening, Nehemiah chapter 10, verses 1 to 31, we see a list of names who sign this document, this covenant before God, they seal this covenant before Almighty God. Now before we think about signing things and agreeing to, to, to vows and oaths and entering into covenants, so often in our lives, when we make vows, or maybe when we sign contracts in real life, how often... Do we read, as they say, the fine print? How often do we pay attention to the little details? And how often do we maybe skip over these things and perhaps treat vows and promises as I do's and things, little hurdles to skip over? My wife and I were watching a movie a few days ago that brought this idea to my mind. It was a movie about the life of uh, George VI. George VI was the father of Elizabeth II, the current queen. And in that movie, there was a man whose job it was to help George VI with his vows. And George VI had a problem speaking. He had a stutter. And in the course of the movie, the person who was helping him was... When he was reading out the vows, he was more or less saying this. Do you? Blah, blah, blah. And I remember thinking, I hope that never happened in real life. Now this is a fictional story based upon the life 
of King George VI. But it made me think about, at least, how many of us are with oaths before God. The, the oath of coronation, the, the crown of the royal family is a promise as well before God. And any promises we make before God are solemn and they are serious. But I think it showed many people's attitudes to promises. Do we think blah, 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 and then we just sign it? That it does not matter what it says as long as we vocally agree outwardly. And that's all that matters. That's all that matters. We're never going to agree with everybody and everything. And there's a danger with that. As Christians, when we make promises and vows, we must not have that attitude. We must not. Our covenanting, our promises before God and others must be as we claim it to be. We must be men, women, and children of our word. Another way of saying that, we must be the same people in private as we are in public. People of integrity. People that are honest. No, we're not perfect, but we must strive for that before Almighty God. And in this account we're given of God's people here, in Nehemiah's day, there's a spiritual revival taking place. From chapter 8, with the law of God being explained by Ezra and others, all the way to this current chapter, and bringing them, moving them to the point of covenanting, promising, entering into an oath before Almighty God. And there would be change, change according to God's word, Change in leaving behind sin. Promise that meant something. Promises that meant something. As the breaking of them would bring consequences. Consequences. And as we look at this text here this evening. Let us think about this. Covenanting is really a response of faith. An act of obedience. To what God has commanded us to do. So number one, we're going to look at covenanting publicly. Covenanting publicly. And this segment is quite a, it's a lot of verses, but from verse one, now those who placed their seal on the document were, begins with Nehemiah the governor, And it goes all the way down then to verse number 28. Verse 28. Now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, and the gatekeepers, the singers, the Nethanim, and all those who had separated themselves from the people of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, and everyone who had knowledge and understanding. These joined with their brethren. What did they join to do? To sign And to seal this covenant. Now as we look at God's people. Together. uh, Putting their seal. Putting their sign as it were. To this agreement before Almighty God. To this promise. As it's called later. An oath. To this oath before God. What brought them to sign 
this document, God moved them. God moved them to prayer through the Spirit of God, through the working of the Word of God. And we have the prayer in Nehemiah chapter 9. Everything that happens here is done prayerfully. Everything that happens here is bathed in prayer. And that is the only way that revival comes. It comes through the sovereign hand of God, but it comes through God moving and changing his people and bringing them ever closer to him. So this is all done bathed in prayer prayerfully. And this inward change of the hearts has an outward expression, doesn't it? It is an outward expression of promise. An outward expression of covenant. Of covenant. A public signing is taking place here. A public expression of that revival in their hearts. They sign a name to this vows. This promise, this oath before God. And what's it saying here? We will obey. We will follow you, O God. And we're declaring it before God. Our brothers and our sisters in Christ and before our the next generation of covenant children. Before all, we are saying we will follow God. There has been neglect. There has been neglect that has taken place in the house of God, in the things of God. This is referred to at the end of Nehemiah chapter 10. And now there is a public promise to change these things. All that to say that there's no private religion here. It's not just me and my private religion. And private religion is a very, very popular thing today, isn't it? People don't like to talk about God. They say, oh, I believe in God, but I just don't want to talk about it. And people love private religion because it, it expects nothing from people. There's no demands from the outside world. If you say you're a Christian, everyone expects you to be different, don't they? (coughs) Private religion expects nothing. So that is why it is so attractive to the world. What did they pray before the signing and promise of this prayer? In Nehemiah 9 verse 36 it says this. Here we are, servants today. Here we are, servants today. And at the end of the verse, here we are, servants in it. Here we are, your servants. And, and we're promising before others. We're promising not just before you in private, but also before others. Publicly. Before each other. To set right what is wrong. What has been neglected. Covenanting really is about. Turning. Back to our responsibilities. Things we have drifted from. Because ultimately. Covenanting is not just. Adding a new covenant. On top of the covenant of grace. Spoken about in the Bible. It's all about turning back to that one covenant of grace in scriptures. That covenant of grace referred to in Psalm 25. It says in Psalm 25 verse 10. 
all the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth to such as keep his covenant. To such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. Verse 14 of that same psalm, and we will sing it later together. The secret of the Lord is with those who fear him. And he will show them his covenant. That is the covenant we are turning back to when we are covenanting biblically. This is the covenant we sinners, fallen sinners, have with Almighty God. And it is a covenant of grace. Because it is gracious, because it is merciful, because it is by faith alone, in Christ alone. This gracious covenant, Christ paid the price necessary for our access to the Father, for our salvation. Christ's perfect work. So when we speak about obedience in the covenant, none of this brings about our salvation. It's not possible. It is only Christ's finished and perfect work. So it is returning to this one covenant of grace. All covenanting you see in scripture. And as covenanting here and as covenanting in other parts of scripture. It must be to be biblical. Be based upon the word of God. It is really a public response in obedience to that one covenant. Let's give you one quote from Professor Frederick S. Leahy, who said this, All God's covenant dealings with his people are within the framework of the covenant of grace. And all covenanting on the part of believers is a response in faith and obedience to that covenant. So this is not an addition to anything in a sense. But it brings us back. And when we do it publicly. When we say we will follow this publicly. Aren't we bringing accountability? Your your friend can say. But didn't you say this? There's something about publicly swearing before God. That accountability, yes, before God, but also with one another. With one another. But friends, let God, may God remind us of our, of our vows. Any vows we've taken to our, throughout our lives. May God remind us. May it not take others to remind us. Whether we be husbands, the vows we've taken in marriage, wives, uh, elders uh, this very day, deacons, the congregation. We've all taken vows, solemn vows before Almighty God. Number two now, so we've looked at covenanting publicly. Now we're going to look at covenanting perceptively. Covenanting perceptively. This word perceptive means this. In a way that shows the ability to notice and understand things that many people do not notice. The ability to notice and understand things that many people do not notice. I don't know about you, but often when I'm reading long contracts and stuff, I tend to skim over the details. And my wife is much better at the small print 
And I thank God for that. But when we're coming before God, we must covenant perceptibly. We must be come with understanding. Because so often when we make promises, we don't really, at times, want to understand what promises we're making. Because it demands a lot from us. In verse 28, it says this. And this is at the end of the verse. It talks about everyone who had knowledge and understanding. Everyone with knowledge and understanding. These are the people who came before God and promised before God. They entered into this oath. Everyone with knowledge and understanding. And where did this knowledge come from? Where did this knowledge come from? If we turn briefly to Nehemiah chapter 8. And look at a few verses from Nehemiah chapter 8. Verse 3 of Nehemiah chapter 8. Then he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday. This is the law of God. Before the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And then also in verse number 8. Verse number 8 of the same chapter. Nehemiah 8.8. 8. So they read distinctly from the book in the law of God and gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. Uh, the understanding and the knowledge came from the word of the living God. It came from the word of the living God, of their responsibilities, of their covenant responsibilities before Almighty God. In also then in Nehemiah chapter 9 verse 3 it talks about this another way they got this knowledge and understanding and they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for one fourth of the day and for another fourth they confessed and worshiped the Lord their God there was serious time spent in understanding and teaching The law of God. And if you go back to the time of the Reformation. Preaching was central. Teaching was central. The understanding of the word of God. Was vitally central. So much so that there was preaching many days of the week. Even in Calvin's Geneva. The word of God. And with that knowledge. It brings conviction, doesn't it? We see where we've fallen short of God's standards. And then there's promises to be binding. In order for them to be binding, in order for it to be a biblical covenant, it must come from the word of God itself. It shows us here, first in leadership. There was Nehemiah the governor and in verse 1. And then there are the priests in verse 8. The Levites in verse 9, their brethren. And then it says in verse 28, now the rest of the people. The priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers. And all who had separated themselves. Because there's this pattern here, isn't there? That the leadership sign the covenant of God. And then, through teaching and understanding, everyone else follows in that pattern. There must be information. There must be 
a love for this truth as well. It's not just enough that just for bare information. But to see where there was a falling short of these standards. And this, friends, was why when we think of the solemn vows taken today for the eldership and for the deacons. Why it was so important for your pastor Robert to spend so many weeks going through what it meant to be an elder. What it meant to be a deacon. So that these things, these vows could be entered into with knowledge and understanding. Not just kind of drifting into a role and not really sure what the role involves, what the promises involve. No, it must be with knowledge and understanding. So these vows could be taken not in vain. Not in vain. When we think of using the Lord's name in vain, rightly, it's, it's, it's heartbreaking when you hear people use the Lord's name as a curse word. But there's more than just the curse word when it comes to the Lord's name in vain. In, in oaths where we don't really mean it and we're just using the Lord's name casually. Let us consider this in the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Exodus 20 verse 7. The third commandment. You cannot come. Let's think of the gospel. You cannot come to Christ himself. The messenger of the covenant. As he's called in Malachi. You cannot come to him without the necessary knowledge and understanding. The necessary knowledge and understanding. Children. Do you know. Why Christ. Died. Do you know. Why Christ. Died. Think about that. He died. It's something we skip over so much. But he died. For a reason. A good holy reason he came to rescue sinners and children do you see older people do you see that these bad people that Christ came to save and rescue includes me and you it includes you it includes all of us sinners who have broken God's law. And we are covenant breakers by nature. Have you ever, children, dropped a toy somewhere dangerous and your mommy or daddy had to get it for you? Perhaps you dropped your toy on top of the cooker. And you say, don't go over there. That's, that's dangerous. Or perhaps you dropped your toy in the water, in the river. You couldn't rescue it yourself. It would have been very, very dangerous. Well, something's far more dangerous. And that's not trusting in Jesus. And you know what's even more dangerous again? Trusting in yourself. Trusting in your heart is the most dangerous thing you will ever do. Another has to rescue you. And you can only see this, friends, if you have the necessary knowledge And understanding. Number three now. Covenanting 
positionally. Covenanting positionally. Now, while we're turning back to that one covenant, his covenant, the covenant of grace, and this covenant goes right back to Genesis chapter 3. Adam falls, and he no longer can maintain the law of God. And he must have relationship with God by grace. While it is turning back to that one covenant... Something has changed here, hasn't it? In our text, something has changed. It says in verse 29, These joined with their brethren, their nobles, and entered into a curse and an oath. Let's hear this again. And entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law. They entered into a a curse, an oath. Think of an oath as a promise. It's another name that's often used instead of the word covenant. (coughs) Something has changed here, hasn't it? Something has changed. It doesn't give us, in a sense, extra responsibilities. But that one true thing we are bound to keep, we're commanded to keep... When we enter into covenant, we're doubly bound to keep it. We're even more guilty when we break it, if we break it. We are always bound to do these things, but there's an additional curse here. To not walk in this way, but the curse of the covenant. An additional curse, a greater guilt For someone who walks in unbelief. Covenant breaking is unto death. Covenant keeping by faith. Trusting in Jesus Christ. Following him is unto life. And it's a narrow way that leadeth unto life. And few there be that find it. But in one side there's unbelief. Covenant breaking. And on the other side there's belief and trust in Jesus Christ. Covenant keeping is by faith. And by faith alone. Just quote quote once more from Frederick S. Leahy. It is clear from a reading of these covenant responses that they related to all of life. They included every realm of human activity. Whenever Israel was restored from backsliding, whenever she turned in penitence to God, there was always covenant response and renewal. A fresh response in faith and obedience to God's covenant of grace. And this is what we see here. A fresh response of faith and obedience to God's covenant of grace. And they entered in to this curse. They entered in to this curse. Because unbelief brings this And when we think about our own nation, our own nation is under the curses of unbelief and under the curses of covenant breaking. Today, our nation freely and openly promotes other religions, lifestyles against nature itself. 
What has our nation promised? I think it's important that we think about what our nation, these two islands, what they have promised together back in 1643. They swore this, that we shall sincerely, really, and constantly, through the grace of God, endeavor in our several places and callings, the preservation of the reformed religion in the Church of Scotland. In doctrine, worship, discipline, and government against our common enemies. The reformation of religion in the kingdoms of England and Ireland. In doctrine, worship, discipline, and government according to the word of God. An example of the best reformed churches and shall endeavor to bring the churches of God in the three kingdoms. And at that time there were three kingdoms. To the nearest conjunction and uniformity in religion, confession of faith, form of church government. Our nation promised to uphold this form of church government, the Presbyterian form of church government. Directory of worship, catechizing, that we and our posterity after us may as brethren live in faith and love and the Lord may delight to dwell in the midst of us. That is just part of the solemn league and covenant of 1643. Which our nation is still under. Which our nation. When we, when we read this quote. And as we think about it. We don't even come close. We don't even make an attempt. In our nation. And it wasn't just church leaders. And it wasn't just reformed Presbyterians. Who signed this. Back in 1643. It was every level of society. Nobility. Church leaders. Leaders in the state. And every layer of society. The nations. These three kingdoms as they were at the time. They promised before almighty God. The promotion of the reformed faith. And the promotion of unity. It wasn't just a few of us. And what we are probably today. A small denomination. Compared to a lot of denominations. It was in the entire two islands together. Our nation is guilty of breaking this covenant. And this promise before almighty God. How much we need to recommit. As nations. To these solemn promises. Before God. Finally, number four, covenanting positively. Covenanting positively. We can always, can't we, when we're thinking of revival and we're thinking of covenanting, we can often, so often think negatively. Immediately our brain goes to, well, here's all the list of things I need to stop doing that I quite enjoy right now. Things that make us feel guilty and horrible in our conscience. And, and in some ways we, we wouldn't mind shedding ourselves of these things. But in order to put away that which is bad, we must love what is good. We must have new taste buds, a new appetite for what is good for us. In verses 29 onwards, these join with their brethren... The nobles and entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law. Verse 30. We would not give 
our daughters as wives to the peoples of the land, nor take their daughters for our sons. This is referring to mixed marriages. Verse 31, if the peoples of the land brought wares or any grain to sell on the Sabbath day, we would not buy it from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. We would forego the seventh day's produce and the exacting of every debt. What do we gain? What do we gain? How do we as well, when we're thinking about teaching the next generation, parents among us, or people who are parents, or people who have, or aunts or uncles, or maybe school teachers, you know that if you just say, well, here's a list of things not to do, the children will immediately be thinking about those things all the time. Or, for example, like this morning, there was a wonderful example uh, that we saw in the pews of the children writing down, uh, learning something about the sermon. And, and, and thinking about the sermon on Exodus chapter 29 this morning and focusing on whatever truths they could take away with them home. But if instead of that, you did this... Well, there's a big red button on the wall, children. Please don't touch it. And then every child is thinking, I did not know there was a red button on the wall. I, what does it do? And you're going to hear a thousand questions about that red button from now until the end of the service. Don't we need to think and focus on what is positive about covenanting? See, so often I think... As covenanters, we can be very, perhaps, yes, there are things we must say no to. Uh, There are things we must describe and tell our children, that's not a good idea. But our main focus, the thing that fills our hearts is the law of Almighty God. And we think how wonderful it is that we are closer to God right here and right now. Because it's very dangerous, isn't it, that we can become... Very legalistic, really fast. Here's ten things you should not do. Or here's a thousand things you should not do. No. When we turn toward God, these are the things we will no longer love. We will turn to his moral character in covenanting, in revival. And this revival, this covenanting, we might look at it in a negative way. We shouldn't. It's freeing. Because what it's giving up is slavery. And what it's promising is freedom. James 1.25 says this, But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. He who looks into the perfect law of liberty. That is another description for the law of God. The commands of Almighty God. We need To work on our love for the things we have promised, don't we? In our vows, we need to think about how wonderful these things are in God's word to which we have promised. And if we've fallen, if we've drifted from these things, let us return to our first love. 
If we don't, see, if we don't get excited about these things, how will our children get excited about them? Our eyes should light up when we talk about God. Our eyes should be, look at these wonderful things, dear children, when you're talking at the dinner table, these wonderful things that you are missing out on when you engage in sin. Sin is horrible. But these things are wonderful. Here's where they're wonderful. Here's the joy. Here's the blessings. Here's the grace of God. Here is the wonderfulness of being closer to Christ. On this earth. And as we wrap up. And as we think about. When we look at the law of God. When we see that there's need of change. In the word of God. Do we continue in sin? Do we think. That's, that's too difficult. I, I don't want to look at that. That's, that's a can of worms. I don't want to look into I understand that thinking, brethren. Years ago, I remember thinking the same thing about singing the Psalms. And I praise God that the Lord, in His mercy, brought me to seeing the blessing of singing the Psalms. In turning from that which is bad to that which is good, there are blessings. There are wonderful blessings. And when we see we have fallen short of God's standards, let us think how exciting it is to be changed by God. Him. Though we need renewal. Though we need reviving in our land. Though we need reminding of the promises that we have made before Almighty God as nations. Oh, may the Lord stir up our hearts. May the revival begin here. May it begin in our own hearts. We may look to our lost neighbors, but it must begin in the church. If you look at the scriptures, the pattern is this. It begins in the church. When Peter preached in Pentecost, his preaching was within the church and thousands came to faith. May the revival begin within the church and stir up our love for God and a love for his promises. Amen.